Palace Perspective is brought to you by Palace Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm with locations in the Northeast, specializing in financial and estate planning solutions, investment management strategies, and family office services for high net worth families across the country. Now, here's your host, James Landry. Welcome to the Palace Perspective, the podcast that brings you conversations and professional analysis on the topics and trends affecting your everyday financial life. I'm your host, James Landry, and I'm glad you chose to listen in today. I know you will find it once again valuable and timely information. Well, so back in October 2020, we were looking ahead to the U.S. general election and wondering, sometimes out loud, if the landscape in Washington, D.C. would look different after January of 2021. Well, sure enough, it does. Quite a bit different. And tonight, President Joe Biden plans to address a joint session of Congress where he will lay out a $1.8 trillion proposal that he says is designed to benefit the U.S. economy and workers. Now, the economy has picked up steam in recent months as vaccination rates have risen, business restrictions have eased, and the latest round of federal stimulus money has fueled spending. And consumer confidence rose in April to the highest level in 14 months, the conference board said on Tuesday. Economists surveyed recently by the Wall Street Journal expect hiring and inflation data to remain strong in the months ahead as the vaccination campaign advances, pushing economic growth to the fastest pace since 1983. We're going to talk about the U.S. economy and particularly some economic distortions, and we'll even touch on some elements of the president's proposal. To help us chart a course forward, I've asked two guests to join me once again today. The first is Mark Bogar, CFA, who is the chief investment officer of Palace Capital Advisors. This is an experiment on a large scale, really affecting the country. And joining Mark is Rich Mullen, one of the founding partners of Palace Capital. The government can print and spend any amount of currency that they want. And now there's a proposal to raise taxes. And I think that this is going to create a little bit of a distortion. So Rich and Mark, we are recovering from one of the deepest but shortest recessions in history. We are seeing an unprecedented combination of monetary and fiscal support. And now Federal Reserve officials uh, are wrapping up a two-day policy meeting today, that's April 28th, at which they are likely to maintain ultra-low interest rates to support the economy's accelerating recovery. And these central bankers have noted in public comments to have noted in public comments the recent pickups in hiring, spending, and inflation, but really they've signaled no readiness to consider changing the Fed's uh, key policies. So the interest rates held by the Fed have been near zero since March of last year, so over a year now. And that's really when the COVID-19 pandemic and related restrictions delivered just such a harsh, severe blow to the economy. And since June, the central bank has been also purchasing around 80 billion of treasury bonds and at least 40 billion of mortgage-backed securities to hold down longer-term borrowing costs for consumers and businesses. And Fed officials have said that they would hold these rates steady until the labor market is back to full strength and inflation is back to around uh, their goal of, say, averaging around 2%. And Chairman uh, Jerome Powell has said these conditions are unlikely to materialize in 2021. And most Fed officials indicated last month they expect to hold off raising rates until 2024 at the earliest. All right. So that's a long way of asking What do you think is happening with the U.S. economy right now? Mark and Rich, I'm going to turn that over to you. Thank you, James. I agree with the sentiment at the Fed. I think we are headed in the right direction. I think there's a confluence of factors here, be it the low interest rates that they're maintaining, the betterment of job reports that we see. We've seen substantial increases in earnings, certainly in the tech sector, but it's pouring over to other sectors as the economy, you know, does begin to open back up. But 
What I really wanted to touch on was this notion that of a return of normalcy, meaning, you know, that once we're all fully vaccinated or have achieved some sort of herd immunity, all of our, our problems, it's smooth sailing, all of our problems are behind us. And what I've really kind of uh, pointed to is what I'm calling economic distortions in the economy. And we talked about some of this in earlier podcasts. And the concept that we talked about was like scarring, you know, what has changed in, uh, permanently as a result of, in this case, this pandemic. We've referred to this concept historically by pointing to other periods of flux in, in the economy, be it the 0809 banking disaster, or, you know, even prior to that, the tech wreck and, and certainly 9-11. And throughout each one of those particular periods of inflection in the market, on the other side, there's been pervasive behavioral change. And just as an ins as an example, you know, people now are, some people are checking the FDIC insurance at banks. Now, prior to 0809, that was rarely, you know, talked about or, or certainly considered. The distortions I'm talking about right now have to deal with the fact that the federal government, in response to an unprecedented pandemic, had an unprecedented response, and that was to shut down basically the global economy. So like a light switch, in effect, they took the econ global economy to its knees and then simultaneously compensated people for shutting down the economy. So pouring money into the economy, in this case, trillions of dollars, one of the Subsequent proposals that's on the table right now is what you're about to talk about here in the $1.8 trillion proposal before us. But when you have that type of a response, you have what's what I'm calling distortions that take place in the economy. You can't shut down the entire economy, meaning bringing supply chains to their knees in many instances, creating uh, massive unemployment and this disruption in the flow, if you will, economic flow of activity, and then think you're going to turn it back on like a light switch. You know, with the preponderance of cash infused into the economy, what we've really embarked on is an experiment in modern monetary theory. And that really states that the government can print and spend any amount of currency that they want. And the only way that they can control Inflation is by sucking up excess cash through taxes. And currently, we are doing both. We're stimulating, and now there's a proposal to raise taxes at the same time. And I think that this is going to create a little bit of a distortion. The economy is not going to open as smoothly um, as I think people might envision. So I think that it'll be a little clunky, if you will, on the front end of this. And let me just stop right there, Mark, and get your opinion on it, because I have a little bit more to talk about on the supply chain and, and some of the uh, distortions that I think are going to kind of reveal themselves. Yeah, well, Rich, you're certainly correct that we're, as a economy, we're embarking on testing some of these new economic theories, right? The modern the monetary policy of what we're pursuing. And I've compared this a little bit to Japan over time in that Japan has run uh, very high budget deficits for years and years and years. Their debt to GDP is uh, much higher than ours, yet you see interest rates have stayed low in uh, their country. And I think one of the elements of why that has been is, well, multiple. One is uh, savers are, are quite prevalent. So the, there's an aging population. It's, these are all these theories interact. But with an aging population, you have uh, a high preponderance of savings. And with that savings, they're willing to buy uh, the treasury bonds of the country, so Japan treasuries, and 
almost at any price. So at relatively, you know, rates at zero, they're willing to hold it because they've got excess savings, but they want to be safe with it. So they own that savings. And it's kind of an internal loop that actually has been sustained. There were predictions that Japan would blow up quite a long time ago, and it hasn't. And so it's interesting that the U.S. is moving a little bit more towards that model. And certainly on the positive side, we could end up maybe inflation doesn't spiral out of control that we have their slack in the labor system or the labor market today that we do have an aging population here in the U.S., not quite as bad as Japan, but we do have an aging population, which is uh, deflationary. So there are some reasons why this won't go out of control. But on the other side of it, it's certainly a heck of a lot of spending. And eventually, you know, with taxes going up are most likely going up, you know, what impact is that going to have? You know, is capital going to flow to the wrong places? Generally, most economic textbooks talk about the government being an inefficient user of capital, an allocator of capital, and the free markets being a more efficient allocator of that capital. And so we may start to see some of those implications as we go down the road, too, if the government takes a bigger share of the economic pie, do we have distortions coming out of that? So this is a, an experiment on a large scale really affecting the country. Yeah. So the, the Fed has really described this as transitory. You know, if you take a look at what they're remarking on in the last month's PPI, it's up 7.6% annualized. The CPI is up 3.6% annualized. You're seeing inflation across commodity prices here. Lumber's up 300%, corn's up 70, aluminum up 56%, and oil up 89%. And the Fed's explanation here is, again, that this is transitory. And as the economy opens up, this will tend to sort itself out. And, you know, that pace of inflation will temper. And I agree with that to to an extent. But as I said, I think you know, they're underestimating the distortion that's created by shutting down supply chains. And these supply chain disruptions are significant. And you can't just turn them back on with a light switch. So, you know, in an economic environment like we have right here, you've seen this distortion play out in things like the job numbers. Yet you walk around, for me anyway, up here in the Northeast, there's help wanted signs everywhere. Yet, we have pervasively high, albeit getting better unemployment numbers. Why is that? You also have, you're seeing, you know, the price of a house up 12% just across the country. And in some sections geographically up here in the Northeast, I think it's outpaced that, that number. And, you know, you can't get, I was talking to, you know, somebody working on my house, the price of a two by four went from $3 to $10. You think about that when you're uh, embarking on, you know, a building of a house or what have you. So does this all really, as the Fed described, you know, sort itself out? Is this really transitory? And I think, you know, where I come down on this is that it is to a degree, but I go back to my concept of scarring. And I think that some of what's been created in this shutdown will be a little bit more pervasive than things than people are giving it credit for. Some people are now going to be afraid to go back to work, regardless of vaccinations or what have you. You know, you're going to see just simple public behavior change, for instance. There'll be a certain segment of folks that, you know, will continue to work from home, wear masks in public, and so on. And how are these distortions, you know, going to abate and at what pace and over what time? And how will they manifest themselves in the economy is really, I think, still a big wild card here. And I don't think, quite frankly, 
it's as easy to turn the government on as it was, I mean, the, the economy as it was to turn it off. Yeah, I agree, Rich. And it's, you know, I, we've talked about that economic scarring, as you've said before. And, you know, examples of that that I think we're still going to see is in, you know, travel could still be one, especially on the business travel side. Leisure travel really, you know, people, you know, are pent up. They want to get out there. So leisure travel is really booming right now. But the business travel still think about, you know, there's internal meetings, external meetings. You got to think, Client-facing meetings, maybe that's going to pick up sooner, but then our clients want to going to meet in in person a lot. There's certainly going to be a, a percentage of the uh, population that doesn't want to, to your point earlier. But then also internal meetings. Uh, I remember a prior employer, but we always had a ton of internal meetings, and we we're always traveling to New York, going different places, and for internal meetings. And think about, oh, that internal meeting movement is just going to end, I think, or be dramatically uh, reduce if you can do it by Zoom, even if it's just a cost-cutting uh, measure at some of these companies. That that's going to happen. And then on the personal side, you know, think about the consumer side. Think about all the online and delivery things that consumers are doing these days. Uh, you look at UPS numbers this week; they were tremendously positive. I think we've seen a permanent move online for some shopping. People have gotten used to it. Even different populations that you know, say older populations that weren't used to ordering online. I know my father's an example that he orders now groceries online at Walmart and goes to goes to pick it up. And so the shopping patterns have certainly changed permanently and that can have implications. We've even we were talking to one person the other day that talked about, you know, impulse purchases at pet stores can be impacted. You know, you typically consumers would buy treats if they're at the cashier when they're buying their food, but if they're not coming into the store, then they're only buying the food and they're not buying the treats. So there's things that really, you know, I guess a little granular, but that, those patterns may stick. And so I think that's really key to be on top of well, which companies are winning in these environments and which ones are lagging. And certainly with the market, the way it's uh, rebounded, a lot of companies have rebounded as if things are going to be the same going forward. And, and we definitely think that's just not the case. Yeah. Just to kind of tie that all together and maybe push it back over to James. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's not going to be as easy um, as modern monetary theory portends to soak up a lot of the additional capital that's put into this economy. And it harkens back to, you know, the classic Milton Friedman, you know, too many dollars chasing too few products. And I believe that rates and inflation will begin to to trickle up. I'm not expecting, as you pointed out early, runaway inflation here by any stretch. I do think there's a lot of pent-up demand here, though. I think that that's going to come online into the economy. And I think that, you know, this will have the net effect, perhaps, of, you know, having rates creep up as well. And let's keep in mind here, you know, we talked about the confluence of factors that are in place right now that are very supportive of the economy and the market in particular. This is a great time, a great environment, quite frankly, uh, for equities. It's not so great for fixed income. And we've talked about that in prior podcasts about how we're responding to the fixed income markets and the change that we perceive coming in interest rates. So, you know, it's not as dire. Certainly, I'm not trying to paint um, a very dismal picture here because we are very constructively positive on the economy. I just point out that I think, you know, unprecedented times bring unprecedented results. And and we here at Palace are, are taking that into consideration and monitoring that always. James, why don't we switch topics here and Sure. Back yeah. it over over to you. Right. I think someone said a long time ago that you know the past or, or the the future doesn't necessarily mirror the past, but it, it certainly can rhyme <laughs> with the past. Right. And you know, one thing that we've stressed on these podcasts, and I know even on the webcasts that you guys have done, is that things are always changing. Change is constant, 
And, you know, at Palace Capital Advisor, I know the investment team is constantly monitoring the economic outlook, short-term, long-term, monetary policy, fiscal policy, how that's going to impact Wall Street, and certainly individual investment portfolios, and then how those investment portfolio results impact individual decisions, family decisions, business decisions, Uh, all that is critical. Well, Let's continue with the theme of change. And uh, well, back in the fall, when we were talking about the upcoming general election, we were talking about president-elect and at the time, President Trump's tax policies. And we knew if there was going to be a change in administration, certainly there was going to be a change in thinking about tax policy. So tonight, when President Biden addresses the joint session of Congress, he's doing that with a relatively high approval rating. I think I saw... Uh, One pollster saying approval rating of 53%, which would be higher than President Trump's approval rating at this point in his presidential uh, cycle, which is, you know, the first 100 days, but slightly lower than a former President uh, Barack Obama's rating was. So, you know, we're in the honeymoon phase still with uh, President Biden, I think. And so we'll see how it goes. But this $1.8 trillion proposal includes a number of, you know, things that will have impact to our clients, to most individuals across America. It's $1 trillion in spending over 10 years and about $800 billion in tax cuts. And that includes things like universal preschool programs for three and four-year-olds. Another item that was in his tax policy was two years of tuition-free community college for all Americans, including Americans that are referred to as dreamers, which would be young immigrants that were brought into the U.S. as children and perhaps even lived here, you know, quote unquote, illegally. So those folks would be entitled to the community college. Money to make child care more affordable for low and middle income families. A national paid leave program. One of President Biden's advisors, Heather Bushi, she's a member of the White House Council on Economic Advisors, said the past year has really underscored the importance of paid leave for families for economic security. Well, I think that, you know, getting an income, equating the economic security seems like common sense to me, but she certainly uh, agrees with that from the White House's perspective. Now, another biggie, top tax rates. We talked about this for the top wage earners are going to move from 30 or are proposed to move from 37% to 39.6%. By the way, that's just the federal income tax rates. Watch out for states that are looking to make up for, you know, lost revenue because of COVID. How are they going to do that? They're going to look for the deep pockets of the high earners. Capital gains rates for households making over $1 million. And when I say making over $1 million, that's not necessarily $1 million of earnings. $1 million can come in the form of capital gains that you realize from selling appreciated securities. Well, for those households, it's going to jump from 20% to 39.6. That's almost a double in capital gains rates taxes. Here's a potential surprise, S-Corp earnings, you know, for folks, and this is, by the way, most of small businesses are structured as what we call pass-through entities for tax purposes, partnerships, LLCs, S-Corporations. Those earnings in those S-Corporations generally were not subject to the 3.8% Affordable Care Act tax. Now earnings over 400000 as I understand it, it's proposed that those will be subject to 3.8% tax. So if you're a small business owner, those earnings may not avoid that tax. And that's in addition to the ordinary income tax that you pay because those earnings are passed on through to the, to the S-corporation earner. Capital gains tax at death. Under the current law, if you pass away with an asset that is appreciated in value, that asset would adjust in basis, step up in basis, 
so that the people that receive those assets as an inheritance would have a tax basis equal to their fair market value. Well, under the proposal, and this is a biggie, at death, there will be a capital gains tax assessed on those assets, regardless of whether or not the inheritors sell those assets. Now, there is a $1 million exemption, and I believe also there's that exemption will be in addition to the $500,000 exemption that's for married couples uh, in re- as it relates to a primary residence. So it may not impact everyone, but it certainly will impact a vast swath of individuals at death. 1031 exchanges of real estate. So this was a very, and has been a very popular way to defer the capital gains tax on the sale of appreciated investment income real estate. And you would do that through what we call a tax code 1031 uh, exchange into a like-kind real estate, and you would defer that tax. Well, that exchange is going to, the deferral is going to be limited to $500,000. $700 billion of revenue is going to come from what uh, the proposal is saying is going to be increased revenue from a double down on IRS audits and enforcement. So they're going to double down on the enforcement personnel over the next several years. And so look for increased audits, look for increased enforcement to raise revenue. The R in IRS stands for revenue, and they want to see it. And then finally, tax cuts for lower and middle American, middle income Americans, you know, translated into an expanded tax credit for child care and expanded earned income tax credit for childless workers. They're going to make that permanent. That's the proposal. Again, all this is a proposal. It would have to become a law, and there's a lot that probably will have to happen on both sides of the aisle to make this proposal a reality. But as we said back in the late latter part of last year in one of our newsletters that the winds of change were blowing, well, they're blowing pretty hard right now. And you can bet there's change coming. So, you know, the people that will best be able to adjust for the change are the ones that are going to plan ahead for it, know about it, and be prepared. Richard, Mark, any comments that you guys might have on on those? No, I think it is going to be interesting to see what actually gets implemented, you know, of this. It's very I think daunting when you start to think about what the ramifications of this entire bill passing in this form. I think that I don't think there's anyone that would kind of argue that that wouldn't impact the market or the economy in some way. So I think we're all kind of sitting here waiting to see what ultimately gets uh, passed in its final form here. But I think you've hit it on the head. The winds of change are coming. There's no question about it. Well, that will do it for this round. And I want to thank Mark and Rich for joining me today. Uh, As always, uh, gentlemen, insightful comments and uh, look forward to uh, staying in touch with you as things progress in 2021. And I want to thank our listeners for spending time with us today. If you would like to speak personally with Rich or Mark about your thoughts on the economy, economic distortion, or President Biden's $1.8 trillion proposal to Congress tonight and certainly reach out to us through our website at palacecapitaladvisors.com. That's P-A-L-L-A-S capitaladvisors.com. We'll talk with you next time. Take care. Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, Triad Advisors, LLC, and their representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances. These materials are provided for general information and educational purposes based upon publicly available information from sources believed to be reliable. 
cannot assure the accuracy or completeness of these materials. The information in these materials may change at any time and without notice. The information contained herein is for informational purposes only. It is not personalized investment advice and should not be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any particular security, sector, or strategy to any individual person or entity. Securities offered through Triad Advisors, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Palace Capital Advisors, LLC is a separate entity from Triad Advisors, LLC.